Attention all Kmart shoppers, welcome back to the Other States of America History Podcast and our thrilling next chapter in the saga of French Florida. Now, if you just got done listening to part two, you might be confused. You might say to yourself, hey, the entire colony was packed up, ready to go, on death's door, dying of starvation, heading towards the boats. They were leaving. Why is there another episode? What's going on here? But just as the French were ready to abandon their claim to Florida, pack up and head home, ships were spotted on the horizon. And this is the cliffhanger where I left you in our last episode. Now, if these were Spanish ships, the, the entire colony was doomed. Each individual person also doomed, especially the Huguenots. The Spanish would see these people as a den of pirates on Spanish territory. They would either be executed on the spot or turned into galley slaves. But it just so happened that these were French ships. And so just as the colony was about to die, it was given a jolt of electricity and brought back to life, at least for now. Let's see if they make it to the end of this episode. And the man commanding these French ships was none other than Jean Revolt. That's right, the man who's been locked in the Tower of London since the end of our first episode on French Florida. And if you haven't listened to that, and you really should, in order for all this to make sense, he got into a bit of an argument with Queen Elizabeth. He may have tried to steal some ships from her with a less-than-above-board deal. And he was locked in the Tower of London. But now, here he was, back in Florida, by orders of his boss, the Admiral of the Navy, and maybe the leading Huguenot in France at this moment, Admiral Gaspard de Caligny. And don't get me on my French pronunciation. I'm working on it. I thought that was pretty good. And so, Jean Ribot left in June of 1565. He brought with him 600 new settlers, seven ships. These new settlers would, of course, be majority Huguenot, which would be French Protestant, mostly of the Calvinist variety. And our long-suffering leader at Fort Caroline, Laudonaire, received Ribot, his boss, an old friend, old leader. Both of them men of nobility. But Ribot had written orders to recall Laudonaire, based on the reports of runaways and mutineers and other scallywags that had made it back to France. Laudonaire's good name had been soiled, and after all the starvation and the battles and the heat and the storms and every other problem, the conflicting alliances... His ships being stolen, his sh him trying to buy new ships, him trying to build ships, and all these other little tiny problems that Laudonaire had just weathered. And you can argue whether he's been a good leader or not, but he's still there. The colony's still put together. They were ready to go. And not only did, did Jean Rabot show up and say, Laudonaire, not only is the colony staying, and we're going to keep this thing going, this nightmare that you've had to live through, but you're in trouble. But to Jean Rabot's credit, he realized that these reports on Laudonaire had been exaggerated. They came from people who rebelled against him, people who mutinied, people who, uh, every single synonym you could think for this. It came from the worst people in the colony who abandoned the mission, abandoned the concept of the colony, usually to go off and be pirates. And so Jean Ribot said to Laudonaire, you don't have to go back. You don't have to answer for these charges. I'm going to put in a good word for you. But then to Laudonaire's credit, he said, no, I've been accused of these things. I will return to France. I will write my good name. And so overnight, French Florida changed all over again. It was reborn and went from being a starving small colony, uh, everyone basically living in Fort Caroline, just preparing to leave, trying to scrounge up enough food from the Native Americans by hook or by crook in order to feed themselves on the way back. And then all of a sudden, 600 new well-fed settlers show up with tons of supplies and they're returned 
decorated leader, Jean Rabot. So this all sounds like good news, but Rabot showed up with a huge piece of bad news. Turns out, the Spanish by this point know pretty much where Fort Caroline is. There had been so many captured French pirates who mutinied from Fort Caroline, like I mentioned several times already because I'm repetitive, who pretty much gave everything away. And the Spanish were prepared to wipe out French Florida. The King of Spain himself told Catherine de' Medici, currently running France for her son, that he was preparing to expel these French interlopers from Spanish territory. That although France and Spain were at peace, this wasn't a wartime move. He was simply removing people from his land that didn't belong there. Not a not an issue for a warlord. It was more of an issue for a landlord. I'm simply evicting people who do not belong. Furthermore, the Spanish had spies in every French port reporting on all of Rabot's activities, his strength in men, the supplies they carried, the number of ships, everything. And also, the uber-ultra-Catholic uh, element of France were leaking information about Rabot's activities to the Spanish. Because, of course, in the eyes of some, if you're a French Catholic, you have more loyalty to a Spanish Catholic than a French Huguenot. And so, before Rabot could even really get settled in, again, sails spotted on the horizon, ships rapidly approaching the coast, and this time, it was a Spanish fleet. So, from the time Rabot arrives, the time the Spanish show up, we're talking about a week, and that's all. Which sounds like a lot of time in today's terms, but it really isn't. Fort Caroline is a little inland. We're talking about right there on the coast. It's hard to get information from there and back again. You have to move supplies. You're moving 600 colonists. A week is nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. And here they are, the bad guys we've been avoiding since episode one. Now they're here. And talk about being caught with your pants down the French fleet was still unloading supplies. They were not ready for an engagement. When the Spanish sailed up upon them, and the commander of the Spanish fleet was Pedro Menendez de Avilés. And don't make fun of my pronunciation. Pedro Menendez de Avilés, who had been given the title of governor of this vast stretch of land that overlapped with French Florida. And now it was up to the two men here, Jean Rabot or Menendez, to impose one's vision upon this land. Menendez was anxious to carve out a little realm of his own in the Spanish Empire. He was also fearful that the French presence in Florida would cause slaves in all the islands and parts south to rebel. The French would uh, be fueling slave revolts, which would essentially cripple the Spanish Empire at this point. And so when Menendez and his fleet came upon the French unprepared, close to the coast, unloading cargo. Jean Rabot was overlooking operations, luckily. And Menendez said to him, screaming from his boat, that you need to surrender, that this was the land of the King of Spain, and you people need to go. Jean Rabot replied, I will die first. And then he had his men cut their anchors, and they immediately headed out to the open ocean, skirting past the Spanish fleet, in a bold move that they did not see coming. Menendez gave chase, but he could not catch Rabot and his men. And soon, they lost sight of one another. Rabot very quickly and very stealthily got back to the coast, back upstream, back to Fort Caroline, to regroup, to reorganize, to come up with a plan. Rabot himself had seen the strength of the Spanish fleet and knew that they were intent on building a rival colony. 
Rabot concluded that he needed to strike first. He needed to head back out onto the ocean in his ships with as much force as he could and find where Menendez was attempting to set up a base of operations and wipe them out before they could create any sort of defensive stronghold. That was the plan. His number two, of course, is Laudanere. Laudanere at this point had become quite sick. He was feeling ill. Nothing that would kill him, mind you, but he was sick enough where he wasn't going to be going anywhere. Laudanere warned Rabot. He said, you don't understand. You know, we come from France. This is Florida. There are storms here that you wouldn't believe where the ocean tosses waves dozens of feet in the air. Nothing like you've seen in France. In fact, I don't believe the French even really had a word for it yet. But you know exactly what I'm talking about. Ribot would hear none of it, even though his good friend Laudanere was pressing for a little more caution, a little more time to plan. He went out onto the ocean, searching for Menendez. Menendez, having lost Ribot in his pursuit, felt the same urge for a hasty decision. And he knew that he had to settle down as fast as possible, create that base of operations in order to take out Ribot. Ribot had a name that was known across Europe. This was not a man to be trifled with. And if he was to be taken out, he was to be taken out as fast as possible. So both men, without thinking, were rapidly preparing for their next engagement. And Menendez settled down as fast as he could, found the first good place on the coast, and he named his settlement St. Augustine. Yes, the St. Augustine you are thinking of. And so if you listen to this podcast for the previous two hours about French Florida, and you're going, what is he talking about? This has nothing to do with America today. Well, it's all irrelevant. No, it's not. Here we are. I'll talk more about it at the end of this episode. But for all intents and purposes, what you need to know right now, and I don't think I used intents and purposes properly, but all you need to know right now is that Menendez named his little settlement St. Augustine. But before he could ever even build it up to any degree, there was Rabot hot on his tails. He found him right away. Menendez was, and now I'm going to use it correctly, for all intents and purposes, intents and purpose, intentions and purposes, that's what it stands for, defenseless. He had no way to defend against Rabot, who brought a superior amount of men. But here's the question. How do you land those men? So for those of you who aren't sailors, I'm not a sailor. You can't just bring a big old ship uh, up, up next to a shore. You can't just go into a bay. You just can't approach a coastline without having some idea of what's going on underneath that water. You could destroy all your ships. Rabot faced a similar situation. He could see Menendez's little tiny colony being built up. No defenses yet. Smaller than, the, than even the numbers he had on his own boats. Ready for the picking. However, he wasn't sure how he could get to them safely. So he lingered off the coast. Just for a little while. But it was long enough for a hurricane to come rolling in. Ribot, with all of his experience and charisma... All of his legendary status and all the great things you can still read about him to this day, some 450 years later or so, was not prepared for a Florida hurricane. And his ships were scattered, crashed against rocks, blown back out to the open ocean, gone. There was, there was no cohesion anymore. Everyone ended up in a different place. Usually the ships were broken and tattered and scattered along the coastlines with no plan B, no provisions, no directions, 
very few maps, probably not a map on every boat, and this is when Menendez makes his rash move. His gamble, his poker hand, he plays it. His little colony, having weathered the hurricane, decides, okay, we have these torrential rains. Rabot and his fleet has just been pushed out of my view. I don't know where they are. I don't know if they're coming back, but I'm gonna take a gamble and I'm going to attack overland Fort Caroline in the rain and the muck and everything else you associate with a hurricane-inflicted Florida. This was a bold move. Imagine if Rabot and his ships were just pushed neatly further down the coast, just a couple miles, just out of sight, and they were able to land and invade uh, St. Augustine while Menendez and the bulk of his forces were out looking for Fort Caroline. It'd be all over. But Menendez knew if there was any time to do this, it'd be right now. And in his back pocket, he had one of those turncoats we talked about earlier. A man by the name of Francis Jean. And Francis Jean knew exactly where Fort Caroline was. And so with a force of 500 men, Menendez left overland in the rain. Uh, September 6th, 1565. Menendez said to his troops before marching overland in the rain, Comrades, the time has come we show our courage and zeal. This is God's war, and we must not flinch. It is a war with Lutherans, and we must wage it with blood and fire. And four days later, in the early morning, while the rain was coming down, and all the residents of Fort Caroline, especially the ones we care about, Loudonair, right? The painter Lemoyne, the carpenter La Chalot, were all sleeping, feeling safe, because who's going to come attack in these torrential rainstorms? Who even wants to walk through the forest in that? Quickly had the walls of the fort breached without anybody knowing. And the French found themselves being slaughtered in their beds. Menendez had taken them by complete surprise. Menendez didn't need to show any mercy, give any warning. This was a holy war in his mind. And a holy war in reality. And this was in Spanish territory. These Huguenots had surrendered all right to their life and livelihood and humanity and dignity when they had disgraced the Catholic Church by abstaining from its sacraments and by being in territory they had no business being in. Because of the rain, the Spanish had to use swords and pikes and they had to forego firearms, which wouldn't work in the rain back then. And so they stabbed people to death in their beds. But not every resident of Fort Caroline was currently sleeping. La Chalot, the old carpenter himself, coming to the New World to make a new chapter in his old life was actually just headed out for work. And he writes, The Spaniards nearly captured me while I was on my way to work, tools in hand. They met me as I came out of my cabin. I could think of no way of escaping but to turn tail and run as fast as I was able. A pikeman chased me, but by the grace of God my strength was doubled. Poor old man that I am, and gray-headed, I leaped over the rampart, which I could not have done if I had thought about it for it was about eight or nine feet high. Once over, I raced towards the forest. When I was about bow shot from the woods, I turned my face towards the fort and waited a little. Emboldened because no one was following me, from where I stood, I saw the fort. I heard the horrible sounds of the slaughter and perceived the three standards which our enemy had planted upon the ramparts. Having now abandoned all hope of meeting my friends again, I put my trust in God and plunged into the heart of the wood. The artist in the colony, Lemoyne, even with his wounded leg, was able to make it out into the woods, where La Chalot was. 
and Laudanaire himself, in his pajamas, and very ill, was able to fight his way through the Spaniards. He was stabbed in the process and then made it over the walls, staying on top as long as he could to pull fellow Frenchmen over to safety. Or potential safety, that is. In the water, just outside of Fort Caroline, managing the boats just outside the reach of the Spaniards who came on foot, was Jacques Rebaud, Jean's son, who was described by all as a coward, had in his command a couple small river sloops that he was keeping away from the shores of the river, obviously. And the Spaniards called out to him, offered him safety if he would come and surrender those ships to them. He, of course, refused, which was the smart thing to do. And during this time, he was paralyzed. He was frozen. He could have made some moves to try to rescue some of his fellow Frenchmen. He did not. He stood there and watched as everyone he knew in this colony was butchered. Jacques noticed that the Spanish were throwing objects at him and taunting him. He realized that those objects were eyeballs and that the Spanish had been gouging out the eyeballs of his friends and throwing them at him in his boats. The Spanish shouted out to him, Bring your boats, we will load them with the women and the children, and you can take them back to safety, back to France. Jacques, of course, did not trust the Spanish, and or was too cowardly to even approach them. Now, although he's remembered as a coward, this might have been the right move. As it turns out, the records show that the Spanish did spare the women and the children. However, Lemoyne, out in the forest, reports the gathering of the French refugees, you could call them, into a little camp on the way outskirts, peeking in on the activities of the Spanish, finding their plight so diminished, so sad, so pathetic. One Frenchman decided to surrender to the Spanish. And so from the far tree line, Lemoyne watched. As this Frenchman approached the Spanish, fell down on his knees, clasped his hands together, and begged the Spanish for mercy as he was surrendering, defenseless and in peace. And they ran a pike through his body, killed him right there on the spot. Which, of course, caused all the Frenchmen at the tree line to once again flee. All in all, the Spanish lost one single soldier. And about 143 Frenchmen were massacred. This was a complete victory for the Spanish. Fort Caroline was taken, uh, the center and really the whole of French Florida destroyed. The Frenchmen that were spared, mostly Catholics or musicians. If any of the men could be identified before being murdered as a man of wealth, they were held for ransom. And the musicians, of course, were kept alive to entertain the soldiers who had murdered all their family and friends. Menendez had all of the religious items associated with the Huguenots gathered together at the fort and had them burned. And then he took most of the dead Protestants and gathered them together and burned them. And then he took a few of them and hung them on a tree outside of the fort and put up a sign that said, I do this not to Frenchmen, but to Lutherans. Menendez made it clear this was not a war between Spain and France. This was a holy war between God and the devil. Having achieved everything he sought out to do, Menendez left a few people at the fort and then went back to his small little settlement of St. Augustine, knowing that Rabot could still be lurking nearby. After some time, he began receiving reports from friendly natives about the French fleet that had been scattered 
and shipwrecked along the coast. He received word that parties of French soldiers were living out in the woods, begging natives for food, that they were desolate, they were separated from one another in small groups, and they were essentially of no threat to Menendez at all. But he went hunting for them anyway. The first group he found, coming upon them with overwhelming force, yelled out to them as they asked for parley, as they asked for terms of surrender from the Spanish on their behalf. He said to them, offering them nothing, by his own account said to them, I hold you as enemies and wage deadly war against you. This I will do with all cruelty. He reported to have said this to many different groups of Frenchmen he found as he trolled the coastline. The group that he found that contained Jean Rabot, Menendez supposedly, by his own account, said to them, I told him he could surrender up the arms and give themselves up to my mercy, that I might do with them that which our Lord ordered. One of the soldiers with Menendez, named Francisco, also reported the parley between Rabot and Menendez. And after Rabot asked for terms of surrender, Francisco reports that the following happened. After much parley between him and our general, the general replied and said that he did not wish to give such a word, but that he should do with them as he wished. In other words, unconditional surrender, have no expectation to walk out of this situation alive. Now the French version of Ribot's surrender comes from Lemoyne, and it came from a French soldier who was there at the time and made it to Lemoyne at some point to deliver this report. Now I'm not spoiling too much by telling you that, you just understand this is the French source. Lemoyne credits Menendez with eight promises, by my count, eight promises to Ribot. So here's the situation. Ribot's going to surrender, and Menendez promised this entire paragraph I'm about to read from Lemoyne's own account. Speaking of Menendez, he not only pledged his faith to La Calais in the terms suggested, and confirmed the pledge with many signs of the cross and by kissing the cross, but made oath in the presence of all his men and drew up a writing sealed with his seal, repeating the oath and promising that he would without fraud, faithfully, and like a gentleman and a man of honesty, preserve the lives of Rabot and his men. Two very different accounts of the same event, written down not too long after the event actually happened. So somebody's covering up something here, or somebody's trying to make someone else look really bad. We don't really know which one is the truth. On the one hand, you have one guy saying, surrender unconditionally, your life is forfeit. Uh, you aren't Catholic. You've, you've belonged to a fallen faith. And then on the other hand, you have a different account where Menendez made all of these flowery, wonderful promises to Rabot. Either way, upon hearing from Menendez that he had taken Fort Caroline and slaughtered everybody there, Rabot surrenders. Rabot's group, like every French group found from the shipwrecks, were rounded up and separated into two groups, those who are Catholic and those who are Huguenot. Those who are Huguenot were led one by one behind a sandy bank. And here again, let's turn to the conflicting accounts about Rabot's fate. In one account, Rabot was informed by a soldier who had him alone behind the bank with his arms tied, that he had orders to kill him. Rabot was given time to recite Psalm 132, replacing all the Davids with 
himself. And then his head was cut off, split into four pieces, and put on the four corners of St. Augustine, christening the city. Another account says Rabot was run through with a pike, sword, and dagger. In another report, having learned about his impending doom, Rabot replied, We are of the earth, and to the earth we must return. Twenty years sooner or later will matter little. However, Lemoyne's account says the exact opposite. Rabot, upon learning of his demise, begged Menendez to reconsider and to think about all the promises he just made. And in yet another report, we hear that Captain San Vicente stabs Rabot in the stomach. Gonzalo de Celes, best I can pronounce that, I'm sorry, put a pike through Rabot's heart. No matter how you look at it, the end result was the same. Menendez, in his own account, described what he did to the Huguenots among the shipwrecked sailors. He said, I had their hands tied behind them and had them stabbed to death. The number of Frenchmen Menendez killed in this fashion, one by one with their arms tied behind their back, stabbed nonetheless, is about 350 men. Of those spared, one living to tell Lemoyne his account, many were turned into galley slaves, and any musicians again spared to entertain uh, the murderers. Menendez himself would organize an effort to capture every Frenchman he could, finding many living among the natives who couldn't be coaxed into surrendering to them and having them sent off as galley slaves or murdered right there on the spot, back to the outskirts of Fort Caroline. Lemoyne, again, had just witnessed his friend try to surrender to the Spanish, be impaled, cut up into pieces, and carried away like a bundle of objects rather than a human being. These scattered peoples in the woods would move towards the coast, far away from Fort Caroline before they'd ever poke their head out of the tree line again. We have Laudanere, who's wounded, but alive. We have Lachalot, the carpenter. We have Lemoyne himself. And the historian Charles Bennett estimates about 50 to 60 other people made it out to the front of the St. John's River along the coast, hoping that some French ships were there to rescue them. They were, they were desperate. But they knew that the Spanish force had been overland. Perhaps there were still some French ships anchored right off the coast. And this is when Jacques Rabot picks them all up. He's finally of some use in our story. So again, this small group, 50 to 60 people, out of the hundreds of Frenchmen who are dumped off here, make their way back to France. The de facto leaders, Jacques Rabot and Laudonnaire, used all their parts and all the boats they had to make three strong boats with cannon and everything they would need to make it back across the ocean, racing to do so as the Spanish, of course, were lurking everywhere. They loaded their ships with what they report as swampy water and moldy bread, and they head out. The three ships become separated in a storm, one of which is pursued by a Spanish ship. Le Chalot reports that the Spanish ship was so intent on catching up and taking the French over that the French had to fire at it again and again, fill it full of so many cannonballs and shot that blood began running out of the Spanish scupper holes, and only then did they back off. One of the ships, named the Pearl, made it back to France, and the colonists became sick even after returning, many of whom died in the weeks following. Laudonnaire on a ship called the Greyhound ended up in Wales and nearly died after docking from some combination of malnutrition and all the communal diseases 
that you would find on board a ship in the 16th century. Laudonnaire waited about six months before returning to France and facing the king and the queen mother herself. Of course, his account would paint the Spanish as demons. And this would pile on to the many accounts, uh, including Le Moyne and La Chalot, and all the widows who returned home to tell these horrible tales of treatment at the hands of the Spanish and the slaughter of their husbands, all in a supposed time of peace with the Spanish Empire. The widows wanted blood. They wanted revenge. And the public, too, wanted blood. They wanted revenge. The French were incensed by the actions of Menendez, colored in the worst possible way by his bitter enemies who made it back to France. The answer to their pleas would be Dominique de Gorges, a nobleman and a warrior, a proud Frenchman who had one point been captured by the Spanish and turned into a galley slave, a harsh and menial task far below his rank, along with most of Spain, a staunch Catholic. But his own feelings towards his neighbors to the south would overwhelm any religious affiliation whatsoever. And he himself actually fought the Huguenots in the first French civil war of religion. But for de Gorgias, this was not a religious matter. This was a national matter. This was a blood feud between people. And it was his turn as the right arm of the French to strike back at those Spanish who had slaughtered his people without mercy, without regard, without humanity. Privately, Dominique de Gorgias spent his own funds to raise a force, about 230 men and a couple ships, having no official orders from the crown. The purpose of this fleet and this armed force was supposedly to capture slaves along the coast of Africa. But those close to him knew exactly what he intended to do. He set sail for Florida and found his way to the St. John's. And that's where he ran to along the shores, the great leader, who we haven't seen since our last episode, Satira or Satiriba, different pronunciations of the same name. The great leader of a faction of the Timikwoa Native Americans. And I know I've said that name several different ways too. And when Satira asked him, Sir, Frenchman, why are you here? What are your intentions? Dominique de Gorgias said something to the effect of, I have come here to kill the Spanish and to leave. Kind of a 16th century form of to kick ass and chew bubblegum. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Satira, please, to see somebody land who would take out the Spanish and then them themselves go back to where they came from and leave him alone, said, I, I will pledge my force to aid you. And so now a combined French and native force are closing in on the former Fort Caroline, which Menendez renamed San Mateo. Menendez kept a number of soldiers at the fort, his main force being at St. Augustine. But these men in San Mateo, they had been ravaging the countryside, destroying the native villages surrounding them, raping women and murdering children. And when de Gorgias and the natives reached San Mateo, they killed everyone. They killed everyone. And the Spanish soldiers who managed to surrender, uh, they were hung from the very same trees that the Spanish themselves hung all the French colonists. And as if to reply to Menendez, de Gorgias wrote, above the hung Spanish soldiers. This is done not as unto Spaniards, but as unto liars, thieves, and murderers. And this, my dear friends, is the end of the saga.
of French Florida. Not long after this point, French officials would admit to Spanish officials in their official correspondence that Florida was in fact part of New Spain and not New France. And so now let's move into the legacy portion of French Florida and everybody involved, not just the French. Let's start first, of course, with our Native American population that we met, the Tamuka or the Timucoa or however you want to say them. Again, at the beginning of our podcast on French Florida, in the middle of the 16th century, the Timucoa numbered somewhere around 100,000 or more in population. However, by the year 1700, they had dwindled to about 1,000 members due to being stuck sort of in the no-man's land between Spanish and English territory. English native allies had been wearing away the Tamuka, enslaving them or assimilating them. Optimistically, within the 18th century, at some point, it is believed that the remnants of the tribe, maybe just a couple hundred people or a couple dozen, joined the Seminole Indians, and then they were no more. This large and proud people who were broken up into many chiefdoms at one point in time. Each one may have been as big as the entire Iroquois Confederacy. Gone. But now let's turn back to the French and what their fate was just for the few who made it back to France and survived the harrowing wreck that was French Florida. The carpenter, Nicolas Le Chalot, who we've turned to several times, gray-haired, slightly over the hill. When he returned from Florida, he wrote this poem. Of course, it's been translated into English. Who wants to go to Florida? Let him go where I have been, returning gaunt and empty, collapsing from weakness. The only benefit I have brought back is one good white stick in my hand. But I am safe and sound, not disheartened. Let's eat. I'm starving. But unfortunately for Lachalot and the others, before the end of the decade, there would be two more French civil wars of religion, with six more in the future. So one in the past, Two right now in the period we're talking about, six more in the future, nine civil wars over religion, uh, France suffering somewhere between two and four million casualties. And one of those casualties in 1572 was Admiral Gaspard de Caligny, the great Huguenot leader of this entire endeavor, who remained in France, of course, because he was a man of position and had certain responsibilities, but he was probably the most famous Huguenot in all of France at the time. He was shot while riding his horse, shot right in the back. But he was a tough man and he survived. But while recovering in bed, he was murdered. The Catholic powers that be allowed young children to mutilate his body. At the end of the day, de Caligny was castrated, disemboweled, and dismembered by children. This was all part of a larger, more mischievous effort that became known as the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. A Catholic planned attack on Huguenots that killed somewhere between 5,000 and 30,000 people. Now, what was the fate of Laudonnaire, our actual on-the-ground leader during much of our story? Just like Nicolas Chalot, he left an account of French Florida and then spent many years trying to capture the glory he always wanted. Ribot died as a fearless leader, and then Coligny died as a martyr. They had glory infused with their legacy. They had a legacy, period. Laudonnaire went on to have a great big family. And he sought employment, actually, with the King of Spain for a while, and then spent most of his life after Florida working for the King of France. But he never got that reputation. He never got what his friends had in their heroic deaths or in their amazing lives. He was always one or two steps below them. And even on his deathbed, Laudonnaire, it, it, it haunted him. And he is recorded to have said, Shall I, Laudonnaire, 
pass away untouched by glory? Sorry, loud and air. By and large, yes. But you have to give him some credit. We've learned about colonies before that have had all of the many factors that affected Loudonaire and Fort Caroline and all of French Florida, and they crumbled right away, or they crumbled a couple months in, or there was a mutiny and the guy was killed. Loudonaire held it together, held it together a lot more than a lot of men would have. So we have to give him credit for that. Perhaps we've treated Loudonaire a little unfairly. But let's start bringing it around to real legacies, things that might actually matter today, things you might find of note. We see the first European-on-European battle on the soil that would become the United States, or even the New World, I believe. We see the Spanish attacking the French. And then, about 18 months later or so, the French attacking the Spanish. This is a first, a European battle on American soil. But let's talk about more important things, because I don't really care about the first guy to do this, the first... It doesn't matter to me. Let's talk about long-term effects. The city of St. Augustine. As it turns out, again, St. Augustine was settled in direct competition to French Florida as a direct result of French Florida. And it is is today the oldest European settlement of continuous occupation in the continental United States. And when Menendez cooled down a little bit, a few of those survivors from those shipwrecks, uh, belonging to the French, of course, found their way to St. Augustine. And Menendez made them part of the population. This is several decades before Jamestown. So even a couple, a handful of residents in St. Augustine in the 16th century could mean millions of descendants among Americans today. Oddly enough, if you look through the American saga through the lens of French Florida, you could almost start the story right here, right now. We have the people. We have uh, the future population of the United States. Well, part of the gene pool that would make it up, it's already there. And the occupied cities, it's already there. But we can connect this whole saga more closely to the American history that you know. Because of St. Augustine, the English became increasingly interested in settling their claim to the New World. Because the Spanish presence threatened their own ability to say they owned any of this land, as we've just seen with what happened to the French. And so part of the reason Roanoke is settled, and then later Jamestown, is to counter St. Augustine, which itself was settled to counter French Florida. But wait, I'm going to take it one step further. As we're going to learn in the next season of this podcast, two different English companies had charters over different portions of the Atlantic coast along North America. The Virginia Company of London, of course, received the southern half. Meanwhile, the Virginia Company of Plymouth received the northern half with a little bit of an overlap and that caused a lot of confusion a lot of worries so once jamestown was settled the company that controlled the northern half the virginia company of plymouth were concerned they're like oh boy this one company is taking off and we haven't even begun to settle our claim well 1620 who lands in their laps but the settlers that you would call pilgrims the separatists of leiden the brownists whatever you want to call them And they settled Plymouth in 1620. So here we go. Plymouth to Jamestown and Roanoke. Back to St. Augustine. All because of French Florida. Maybe I'm reading too much into this. Maybe this is a little too high concept. Maybe it might be all in my imagination. But here's one final tangible link before I sign off here. Lemoyne, the painter. Remember him? The French painter who left us uh, probably the best account of French Florida. And his paintings 
uh, French Florida later were made in etchings and published, and you can look at them today. There are some of the first images we have of many of the different Native Americans in the Southeast United States. Because of all the French wars of religion, Lemoyne Huguenot moved to England, where his Calvinist bent faith would have a little more acceptance. Here you would find moderate success as an artist and a publisher, a bookseller. And one day a man named John White sought out Lemoyne. And he said to Lemoyne, I'm going to make a colony in the New World. This colony, of course, would become known as Roanoke. And he sought out Lemoyne for advice because he had heard of his tale of French Florida. And Lemoyne, quite old at this point, imparted all the wisdom he could on what the New World was all about to John White. And so here we have a very literal handoff of French Florida to the English colonies themselves. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I have all three parts. Thank you for listening. Find us on Twitter and Faceplace. I'm Eric Giannis. This has been the Other States of America History Podcast. Thank you for listening.